Welcome to the Dangling Conversation. Today I am joined by Dr. Terry Cross, the Dean of the School of Theology and Ministry here at Lee University. Um, Dr. Cross, it is wonderful to have you. Yeah, it's great to be here, Noah. Thanks for asking me. One of the first things I wanted to ask was, when did you feel as if you were called to be a professor? What kind of pushed you to, to, to go towards education? Right. So I th- came to Lee College in 1974 thinking I would spend a year or two and then go out and pastor mm-hmm. because the options for us in those days were mainly pastor or missionary. Right. So uh, what happened was that fall, uh, as a freshman, I saw something modeled for me that I had not seen in my years in the church Hmm. uh, growing up, and that was an attempt to blend the intellectual with the spiritual. So that model from professors here at Lee is what triggered something in me. Um, I have always had a deep love for God's Word, What this was was a burning desire to teach the Word. Mm. And in the process, I'd say around the second year, I felt a calling to go into doctoral studies, Mm. and mainly in the area of theology. So I pursued that and went to an accredited school, which was important because in those days Pentecostals did not have any accredited seminaries. Uh-huh. Uh, so I knew I needed to go on further, so I found a school made by, uh, run by the Church of the Brethren, or the Brethren Church in uh, Ohio, Ashland, and uh, spent four years there doing work in church history and theology, and then went on to Princeton and finished uh, the PhD there. All of that was just as if I had been called to a mission. Yeah. So did you go right from that into the education field? No. Uh, So I spent 12 years as a pastor. Okay. But as I like to say, um, in each situation, God opened the back door for me. I I didn't come in through the front door. I didn't know I was going to pastor in a situation that I was in, um, but it was opened, and I couldn't deny the fact that God was pushing me there. And I'd say now I couldn't really do my job well if I hadn't had those pastoral experiences. <laughs> how did how yeah? How does that inform? Because one of the things you know we talk about in churches is like, oh, the pastor's teaching, and how is that teaching from a pulpit and the pastoral relationship different and similar to being a professor? Right. Great question. Um, I think the teaching uh, in a in a church setting and pulpit. Is a lot. I'm a lot more conscious about the audience mm. uh, because the audience might change from week to week, or the people who were there all the time heard me in the last year delivering something. Now I can go to a different level. Mm. Um, so what I do in the academic sphere is try not to lose that understanding for the audience. At yeah. the same time, press them okay, you need to know this, this, and this before you can move to the next level. So I need to make it s- make sure they understand where they are and what words need to be 
learned and what concepts mm. and how to think about things. So I, that part is not part of the pedagogy of the pulpit. <laughs> it's more the pedagogy of the uh, lectern. Yeah. yeah. It's different. Yeah. I think one of the things that's difficult is sometimes as a congregation member, it can be very much so. It's like, how do we make this in the most layman's terms possible? And then especially coming to, like, becoming a theology major for me, I uh, I didn't know how many books there were in the Bible. Like, like, and then suddenly I, like, you know, I have this, into, I have Systematic 1 and 2, mm. and, like, I go home to my parents' church, and I'm just like, oh, my gosh, like, no wonder I didn't know anything coming in <laughs> here. Not, not as an insult to them, but just, like, yeah. so from a, I guess this is still from a pastoral perspective, how did you try to not treat the audience dumb the the congregation dumb but also making it accessible and theologically literate right uh that is probably for me you've just stated succinctly one of my goals as a pastor Mm. i had been told over and over that i would never be a success as a pastor really because i was too cerebral but i think those people didn't know my fun side (laughs) uh so when I pastored, I just had a lot of fun. Really? I loved preaching, and I loved getting the word across. And what I discovered, unlike those who said the sheep don't want to hear all of the heavier stuff, yeah. I, boy, once you start feeding God's sheep some substance of food rather mm-hmm. than pablum, um, they're hungry for more. They come back for that. And... For me, the benefit is that 25 years later, they'll pick up a phone and call me and say, you remember that message? <laughs> uh, and I'll say, no, I don't. <laughs> but obviously God used that for for them. Uh, and I think that it's important not to assume your audience is dumb. Right. But to find a way to make passion part of what you do in the pulpit or in the lectern uh, if I'm not passionate about a topic, then I'm certain the audience is not going to know what they're supposed to do with it either. Mm. So, so you spent 12 years as a pastor. How did you transition from that into education? Was it immediately here to Lee, or did you teach somewhere else? So I taught high school for seven years while I was, and part of that was finishing my uh, Ph.D. dissertation. What did you teach? I taught uh, Latin and history. Oh, that's a good time. Ninth through twelfth grade. It was, it was a an experience for me, in many ways. <laughs> uh, but I often say I learned to teach at that point, mm. because you either teach or die. You either get people's attention, and get them into the subject, or you're in trouble. Um, so probably, in the middle of that, I was asked to teach at a community college. Right. So I started teaching philosophy, philosophy of religion at a nearby community college in Connecticut. And then um, I really enjoyed that. And about, I was almost seven years in the pastorate where I was and uh, got a call from here to come down and interview. And I had said I would never return to Lee. <laughs> Why? And, Why was it? And Cleveland. I, the, the Lee and the Cleveland that I left was a little more narrow-minded and Southern than I had appreciated. Yeah. 
I love the Church of God. I'm still part of it. I'm an ordained bishop in the church. But what happened in Cleveland was another thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what I discovered is Lee had changed, and so had Cleveland. Yeah. So it was a much uh, warmer and better place than I had thought. And God just pulled us here. Yeah. And how long have you been teaching here? 25 years. And how long have you been the dean? The dean, 20 years. Yeah. Oh, wow. So you were only a teacher for five years, and then you're like... Yeah. In fact, I was a teacher one year and became associate dean. And then for four more years, I was that, and then I became dean. Did that feel too fast, or did the progression just feel really natural? It, it, you might need to ask the people who were teaching here at the time whether uh, <laughs> that I was thought he too just fast. Got here. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a lot that I f- I was welcomed into, and did a lot in those first five years that made it feel like I had been here longer than I had. Mm. So that subtly, I think, uh, made the case. But uh, I probably personally would have waited a few more more years. But there was a need, and so I answered it. Yeah. How have you seen, and I guess like this is an appropriate time to talk about it, like mm. how have you seen the the school of religion change, right. especially going into this year where we're changing our name? Right. So we've had the name school of religion for the 25 years I came, since mm-hmm. I've come. So 1997, when we became a university, that's when that was given to us. We actually were told we couldn't have other kinds of names, so that was the one that had to land, and I never did feel comfortable with it. Okay. My discomfort was people in churches could feel like nah, school of religion, that's a religion is the kind of thing that doesn't emphasize the relationship with Jesus Christ, so they usually will cast that against the relational idea, or religion can mean a number of things in the academic field. Um so that's part of the impetus over 20 years. I've had that 25 years now, that burr under my saddle, that yeah. this doesn't quite match what we do here. Mm-hmm. So we came up with the idea that we needed to refocus on training ministers while at the same time not leaving behind the important task of Bible and theology. So basically what we're doing with the School of Theology and Ministry is trying to make sure everyone who graduates that goes into ministry, and not all of our graduates will, but those who do have first a theological and biblical foundation on which to build the skill of doing ministry. Hmm. So that's basically what our whole format is. And then including with the theoretical of the theology and Bible, moving into the practical of the skill, probably through internships that we have been creating and working on. Uh, we're hopeful to add a dimension in there about reading culture. Mm. I think that's the one thing that your program in the last few years uh, and all of the programs have been missing. How does ministry get affected by, how does the church get affected by, and how does ministry affect and the church affect culture um there's a an odd relaxation uh that comes when we hear the word culture that uh, the church just does nothing with it Mm. and i think we need to train people in how culture operates so they can read it well enough and share that with their 
ministry field. Yeah. How do you feel as if culture informs theology appropriately? Something that we talked about in our in uh, History of Christianity this last year was uh, Skip had us read this book that we took notes on. Uh, it's some, like the Entering Golden Age of Christendom or something. Um, it's by Philip Jenkins, no relation to Skip. Right. Um, but one of the things that it talks about is that we still think of Christianity, especially Protestantism, as a white religion. Mm-hmm. But this book was written in like 98 or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's projected that as the gospel spreads through Africa as well as Asia, the majority of Christians will no longer be white. Right. And with that, they have a different cultural view in which they understand the gospel. Right. And I was talking to someone because they were, they were saying like, the evils of liberation theology and like they were using that kind of language and i was just like well are you telling me like someone who constantly has this us versus the government where the government is quite literally oppressing us wouldn't see jesus and be like oh christ is liberating from this as well as like from your viewpoint you might have a different interpretation of it both can be taken to unnecessary extremes Mm -hmm. yeah but there are beautiful points of truth of which like like you know are you really going to say christ isn't a liberator mm, um, right and so those and, or or say that christ is is not concerned about the structural setup yeah. of oppression yeah and and so like that's a long way to ask like there are ways in which cultures bring about new understandings that i would say are appropriate but that can be taken to wrong extremes I think that's a good uh, description. Uh, So I'm going to throw out a theologian's name from the 50s and 60s, Paul Tillich. Not necessarily my favorite. I've been to his grave in in New Harmony. Wow, My family's from that uh, Incredible. Yeah, Yeah, anyways. So Paul Tillich uh, had an idea in his theological method that suggested there is a correlation that needs to occur Mm. in the theological task. The correlation is between the gospel and culture. Okay. So that questions arise from the culture that the gospel and scripture needs to find ways of Mm. answering. So what, what I take from that, I don't use that a lot in my theological method, but I use it frequently. Yeah. What I take from that is a need for theology to be more than just head knowledge, yeah. stuck in its own sphere, thinking ideas uh, and doctrines, but the doctrines have to have some answer to the questions that are being raised by the current culture. Yeah. It doesn't mean the culture drives the theological truth. It means you find ways to make the theological truth relevant to the particular culture mm, without completely subverting it exactly yeah uh, and if the culture is asking questions that will require there to be a subversion of the gospel that's when theologians also must step up and say no that can't happen we yeah. can't uh, say the gospel that way because then you've warped it yeah something i got like i i, I put some stuff on social media of like people to submit questions this this interview or whatever and something i consistently got was um especially from people that weren't in the sor was 
what is the non-theologian's approach to theology? How, why do they need that in their personal mm. lives? And then also, how do they go about gaining that knowledge? Right. So imagine discipleship coming closer to Christ without any head content or theological knowledge. Mm. I think what you would get is a very vapid and shallow level of discipleship. They would maybe have a passion to begin with, but after a while that passion burns out. So yeah. what's left? If there's not an intellectual part to the uh, discipling process, then it becomes just all heart and no head. Mm. Part of what I think theology offers to every Christian is a, a depth and a dimension of understanding how the, what the Word of God means, and then how do I apply that in my current life and situation? So theology is not some esoteric, just thinking and meditating like a, a monk in the Middle Ages, yeah. just speculating. Theology is a lived experience with God. So my theology is fostered in prayer because many times I'm meditating, I'm praying, I'm reading the Word of God. I have a passage in the Psalms right now. I try to do the Psalms every day. I have a passage right now that I'm just baffled over. It was Psalms 58 or 9. I think it was 58. And I'm I'm praying to God about understanding the Psalm better because it's bashing in the teeth of the ungodly. <laughs> Okay, so that's, wh what does it mean for me to hear a fellow follower of God asking for some kind of vengeance to be had? Mm. Uh, is it just a cry out of his heart that God allowed to be placed in Scripture? Is that something I'm supposed to follow? How do I deal with those kinds of um, what are called precatory psalms where you're asking God to do damage? Yeah. Um, okay, that's a a small sliver, and maybe that's a more sophisticated sliver of the theological task, but when I'm focusing on that in prayer, I'm asking God to show me more of himself. And what I think frequently gets done in theological, when theology is bashed, people usually are thinking of it as this theoretical exercise only that has no practical value in my life. Yeah, I see it exactly the reversed. And where you described uh, earlier about my pastoral experience, what was there that had, didn't want to water down or dumb down mm -hmm. uh, the gospel? That was it. I, they needed something to live by that was more than just uh, an emotional experience. Yeah. What would you say is a good way for the non-student to learn and practice theology because like there there are some ways where people will have the perspective of like oh well just read a million books right or um you know like that's not a bad way but some people aren't necessarily not huge readers let's go with right. that yeah um what what are what are some baby steps practical stepping stones very great question I would certainly say not to go to a book and read. Okay. I would begin by opening the Bible mm -hmm. and trying to hear 
who this God is that is speaking to us. So reading it with that first view in mind, if you have to read all through the New Testament again or even the whole Bible again, with just that thought in mind, who is this God? What you're doing is the entry level of theology. You're learning about God's attributes, about who he is in his essence, about how he deals with people. Uh, this is the essence of theology. Yeah. Uh, then I, I think I would say prayer is the second level. So theology done right, I think, begins in worship. Mm. So the prayer at this point is not petition, but it is basking in the presence of God, finding a way in your personal life to do that every day, which means I'm not talking to God in the sense that I'm asking him to do something for me, but I'm listening. I'm thinking when a thought comes in my mind about this God. I'm calculating what it is that God is encountering me with. I'm leaving room, making space for God to meet me. Mm. So I'd say that's that second level. So the Bible and seeing who God is and prayer that is more than just petition. It's worship, sitting in his presence. And then I would say is the time to get uh, a good book. Uh, And there are a lot, there are a lot of theology books out there, but not a lot of good ones for beginners. It, it just depends on where you are in your experience with God. But I think probably either a good theology text that is a simple beginning text, or find an old Christian <laughs> that you respect a great deal because you've seen their life. Hmm. You've seen them in good times and bad times, and they're still Christian. Uh, just sit with them, ask them questions, engage them, hmm. and I guarantee you, you will get a theological content out of that. <laughs> that's that's actually really good advice. Hmm. I said I say actually like it's surprising, but um, <laughs> what would you? What is your personal devotion time look like? Hmm. Okay, I'm not perfect. Really? Yeah, that's news. Um, I struggle with my sleep and schedule to make sure I get it right. Yeah. But when I get it right, um, every morning I like to begin reading through the Psalms. So I, there's a way you can do that, a scheduling to do that of about five Psalms a day that will get you in th- 30 days through the book of Psalms. Mm. So either in the morning I read all five or in the evening I read uh two and read three in the morning, something to keep me on that schedule. Uh, What I find is really has brought me to that place, oddly enough, is uh, the high school I talked about had was a a Catholic high school, Mm. and they had an evening class where I was asked to teach Old Testament, just kind of go through the Old Testament for adults who wanted to learn more. In that process, I came on the Psalms, and I said to the class, I'd like you to write a psalm for next week. Find one of the five major genres of psalm and do your best to write a contemporary psalm. Yeah. 
Well, uh, they all read them, or I handed them in, and I said I would read them aloud, and that was my first vision of them when I saw them to read. And I read Sister Mary Margaret's. Uh, she was a nun in full habit, mm. 82 years old. Oh, man. And I was nervous that she was in my class anyway, because <laughs> what can I teach her about the Bible? Um, right. But her psalm was entitled The Cycles of Life, and it went through this beautiful imagery of how things go and come round and how that God is the remaining constant. Mm. Uh, and it did it in a style that sounded like David himself had written it. I finished it, and I was in tears. The whole class was in tears. Mm. I had to call a recess. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I came back and I said, okay, I said I would not have tell anyone whose psalm was whose, but Sister Mary Margaret, that was yours, and you got to tell us, how did you capture the sense of psalms and David so much? Her response was, I've just celebrated 50 years in this order, and every morning at 3 or 4 in the morning, we get up and sing the psalms. We go through the Psalms and sing it. So I guess it's in my blood. Hmm. When I heard that, I thought of all the times I had assumed Catholics were not saved. Mm. <laughs> and all the time I assumed they were not in relationship with God that was as good as mine. And I realized this saint had an ability to soak in the Word of God in a way that I would have in my youth have called a ritual mm. and would have missed the inculcation of a habit that, like a sponge, soaked up whatever was there in the Word of God. Mm. So that changed my personal devotional life. Yeah, The Psalms have become the, a centerpiece. And, by the way, it's the same thing for Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who calls the Psalms the prayer book of the church. Yeah. yeah. So that's, uh, that's my one thing. And then uh, in terms of Scripture, but in terms of prayer, I do a, a lot of non-petitionary prayer. I believe in practicing the presence of God, just sitting and letting God talk to me. Mm. How do you go about that? The first thing, one has to remove distractions. So I have to be in a place that I'm not distracted or looking at my phone. <laughs> Second, I have to remove the internal distractions. Mm. So the immense pressures or things that I've been feeling, a rushed through day, all kinds of things have to be set on a cabinet somewhere in my mind. And on occasion, I have to ask God to help me get there because... These things are just pressing. It's right. been so vivid. If I can get to that point, then I lose track of time because I'm spending time with God and in, in what feels to me like an eternal presence that is without time. Um, and in that, I'm listening for whatever God brings to my mind. Mm. And I found that's something what God wants to talk to us, I think, even more than we are aware of uh, and his voice is unlike any other 
Yeah. It it is not always good stuff God shares with me. Sometimes <laughs> he shares with me how selfish my attitude had been or how angry I had gotten and what was the source of that anger. And it's almost like God's doing some psychoanalysis with me mm. on occasion. Uh, so there's that kind of development. Then there are other times where God reminds me of things that brings great joy or celebration. Yeah. So all of that is part of my daily routine. To backtrack a little bit, do you still have the psalm that she had written? I don't. (laughs) I have looked everywhere. We've moved three times since then, Uh, and I have desperate. All I can remember is the title. Really? Yeah, and she's passed on by now, I'm sure. That's a shame. It is a shame. (laughs) I'm I'm sorrowful over that. Yeah. Yeah. Something I wanted to ask was my friends and I will talk about sometimes the burden of knowledge. Yeah. Um, and how <laughs> we we kind of joke about like uh, I guess within the the S O R people uh, S O saw S T M S T M um uh as well as just like the like the theology world in general looking at the history of theologians mm-hmm. sometimes it, it's not so much that they are miserable but deeply burdened mm. and. So I, I, that's something I kind of wanted to ask you about. Do you feel a burden of knowledge that comes mm-hmm. with not just theology, but also you're you're the dean here? Yeah, like you have sure. a, you have in a way a responsibility of being the shepherd of all of these students. Yeah. Like, do you feel that way? Do you feel it now that I'm bringing it up <laughs> to you? <laughs> <laughs> Even more so. Yeah, I don't. I I never live without that feeling. Yeah, but. In my opinion, you have to be called in order to carry that weight. Mm. So that was the way I was as a pastor. I remember vividly when I came here and stopped pastoring the people I had been pastoring for seven years. I did, the weight was gone. Mm. But it now has been replaced (laughs) with this. But I would say there is a burden to, of that responsibility Hang on to that a moment and let me come back to it. There's a burden of knowledge mm. um, that used to weigh on me heavier than it does now. Yeah, I don't know if it's because I just got older and I'm not as concerned about proving others wrong. Mm. What do you mean? I spent most of my 20s engaged in debate and argumentation. Yeah. It's just was the way I thought <laughs> this should be. Yeah. And part of frankly part of why I like theology is because it fosters that. Mm. What I ended up in my 30s and 40s doing is realizing that doesn't always work. Yeah. Uh by work I mean there's not always a lot of fruit of that in terms of for the kingdom of God or for my own personal joy and, and life. And part of my reading it over the years has been Karl Barth. Mm-hmm. And that theologian from Switzerland said there should be no morose thinking in theology, things that will make you sad, mm. because the content of what we're studying is God. And this must, by its nature, be a joyous thing. Hmm. So I'm not a celebrator 
<laughs> and I have had all my life to learn how to celebrate. Yeah. And give time for that. I'm not a naturally boyish, joyous person. Um, and it is uh, part of my makeup. What I've had to learn to do is to pause so that I can see that I'm doing something right now that is the most important thing for me to do. Mm -hmm. And that there is great joy in that. Because God is the one who is in control of my life. Yeah. I don't need to win an argument. Mm. Because at the end of the day, I may not know the truth anyway on that particular argument. Right. So I guess my shorter answer is, when I was in my 20s, I thought I'd do a whole lot. <laughs> when I was in my 30s and 40s, I began to realize what I thought I knew, I'm questioning more. So my circle of truth that I thought I knew for sure shrunk a lot. Now I'm pretty rock solid in that truth, but it's a whole lot smaller area than it used to be. Mm. That reminds me of there's a there's a Simon and Garfunkel lyric which is what this the dangling conversation is named Got after it. this yep. one, where he says I am older than I once was mm. but younger than I'll be mm. um and kind of talks about like I am like like what that makes me think of is the idea of I I I know more than I used to and I know less than I will. And part of what like being in this program has taught me was like, mm -hmm. I know so much more mm -hmm. than I used to, but also by being aware, by learning, I have also learned I know nothing about theology. Yeah. Well, yeah. At, the, at the same time, I know so much more than I ever did. Yes. And then I also look at the vast sea of what the history of the church is and what what everything else, well, all the commentaries that there are, and I also realize I also know nothing in comparison to that. So running back to that phrase that you gave of burden mm. of knowledge, I think the burden of knowledge as it weighs on you over, over time is not to give you arrogance but to bring humility. Mm. Do and you see people confuse that? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. In fact, I confused it. I'm not sure I was arrogant, but I'm sure I used it in an arrogant manner. S how how would you tell people, or at least how did you tell yourself to counteract that? Well, here's again where I think it's important that God's Spirit speaks to us at times when we really are getting out of line. Mm -hmm. So I came to the place in my 20s where I just had a hard time attending a particular church that I was actually the assistant pastor of. Because the pastor just made confusing sermons and just drove me nuts. I was so angry, uh, but never expressed it. Mm. I should have talked to him directly. He just did not have a gift for preaching. He was a great one-on-one -on -one counselor, but not otherwise. So I'm in the middle of that concept and thinking through it, on a Sunday night, and he preaches a sermon on Ephesians 1 that is the most confusing sermon I've heard to this day. <laughs> and at the end, he offers an altar call. 
And I'm thinking, who ever made sense out of that <laughs> sermon would come for seven people, walk forward, and were saved that night. Wow. So when that happened, it was like, okay, you want to predict how the Spirit moves and works in people's lives according to the quality of a sermon? I'll just show you that I can do things without that. Mm. That was the beginning of a whole lot of lessons that I had to learn mm. in humility. That's really good. Um, one of the things you had mentioned was Korobart. Um and you do you do translating on some right. of his works, right? Could you kind of explain who he is mm. and why he's like so important to the faith as well as how we are to view his work in light of recent controversy. Okay. Yes, yeah, so Karl Barth uh, was born in 1886 and dies in 1968. He has written a large 13-volume set called Church Dogmatics. Here's why he was important, important historically. Um, he was raised and trained in the old Protestant liberal school. People like Adolf von Harnack and others who trained him focused on experience with God so that faith had some connection to experience. At some point in the 1915-16 period, Bart, as a pastor in Switzerland, says, I don't think my education has helped me preach in the pulpit. Mm. So what what would help? He tried to be a, a, a very clear socialist. He was often called the red pastor at that <laughs> time. Uh, he also tried a number of things, but one thing that he ended up doing was studying the Bible and reading the book of Romans again. Mm. And he did so with a friend, Edward Turnison, a fellow pastor. And then he wrote his comments on it and ended up publishing it in 1918. What what is important about that and what followed, he said, what if we take this book not as a, in a thing that needs to be dissected and looked at in a microscope and have all of these form criticism, historical criticism, and other criticisms operating to figure out what it says, why don't we just think that this is God speaking to us? What is God saying in these strange words from the Apostle Paul in the first century? Hmm. And that was the immediate impact of what came to be called the theology of the word. Uh, and his approach then offered uh, a, an entirely different view of who this God is. He's far above us, but he stoops to speak to us in Jesus Christ. And over couple of decades, he develops that theology very clearly, all of which goes back to the point, if God is revealing himself to us in the word of God, the written word, and in Jesus Christ, the re word revealed in flesh, what does that mean? What are the implications of that for theology, for church, for Christian life, for living? So he, I think single-handedly, turned the boat of theology a different direction and one that is much more amenable to those of us who do theology from a conservative Christian point of view. Hmm. Um, now, 
in that process, uh, you know, there are theologians that are human beings as well. And uh, apparently there was uh, some relationship he developed, whether it was physical or not, is still unknown. Mm -hmm. Although the implication seems pretty strongly that it could have been at some point. In the same house with him was his secretary, Charlotta, and uh, his wife, Nellie, and his children. while the children never n- knew of anything untoward in the house and didn't suspect anything, there are some letters from 1933 where Nellie says, I want a divorce. That's now public knowledge. And um, Edward Turnyison, the man I mentioned as Bart's pastor friend, helped both of them out and through that. Uh, and they stayed together. Um, and uh, Charlotte has remained in the home. So whatever it was that created that crisis in 1933 seems to have been resolved mm-hmm. and moved forward. It raises the wonderful question of um, can God use people who are human and in error and, in, and living in sin, I guess, would be the question asked in mm. a holiness way. I, <laughs> I think God can use a donkey if he wants to, and what I see as Bart's greatest gift to us is a return to the Word of God and to the sovereignty and distance between God and us. Um, That was a a gift to the church. Uh, Beyond that, I'm not sure how to negotiate some of this other stuff. because not all of us as servants of God are perfect. Yeah. I think it's I think it's different whenever you are viewing this person as a historical figure mm-hmm. rather than your neighbor where it is someone who is very like like my pastor's messed up. <laughs> like like not m- maybe not I'm not going to say in the same ways or whatever. Um right. But there there is a there's 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 a different attitude about things whenever it's um if you have a personal friend who has messed up in their marriage the instinct isn't well everything you do is now destroyed it is how do we come around you and support you and help now it's entirely different if this person goes no i think i'm 100 percent justified in everything i'm doing um and i think that's why a lot of people have been so shocked by the news around like people like Ravi Zacharias, mm, yeah, where a, 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 a remarkably influential figure within Christian circles right. who did a lot of good, but there was not only this underlying sin issue, but it was a actively hid right. by his ministry, and that suddenly changes the perspective on everything he I does, agree. as opposed yeah. to what seems like with Bart, it is a more personal, privatized mistake that got dealt with in some capacity. But people want to use that to discredit his legacy. Right. That's that's an interesting comparison. Um, I I would say a further thing, uh, John Howard Yoder, for example, is a a recent uh, uh, revelation of some serious serial problems Hmm. of a sexual nature that he had. Surprised a number of people. and it's 
okay, someone can think intellectually in the gospel and give us some good insight. Mm-hmm. But then it always makes you make a question mark if they write on something. Uh, I want to look at their stuff more more closely. Yeah. For Bart, I, I can be very clear, I think, on this. At least the history is clear. He was not a serial womanizer. Yeah. Now, that doesn't make whatever he did between God, him, and Nellie, and uh, Charlotta, doesn't make whatever happened there good. Right. But the fact that they all lived in the same house for the next 30 years uh, says something Mm -hmm. about a resolution and um, a direction toward which they headed. Something I wanted to ask is, how have you seen the church in America change in all your years, as well as where do you see the future of the church going? Hmm. So the more evangelical side of the church has changed drastically. Mm. What used to be a pretty good tent where you had specific uh, beliefs in common in the evangelical movement, there would be some that didn't see it exactly the same, but had basic ideas like being born again and what a Christian should live. We could all survive under that tent. So you could have group meetings of these evangelical churches together and worship together, and there would be no problem. Um, Somewhere in the last 10 to 15 years, the tent has become shredded. Mm. And just the stakes are up with some remnants of flags of the old tent flying. Uh, There's no umbrella anymore. There's no unifying factor other than the political factor. Mm. So I find that evangelicalism has been taken over by a a very uh, right-wing radical group, uh, particularly for political agendas. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm a wild left radical, uh, <laughs> uh, but I am concerned that what was once focused on the gospel of Christ is now seeming to focus on culture wars and uh, political agendas. Mm. That's a big thing in terms of m- my own home, that is the evangelical and Pentecostal movement, But I've also seen large churches, uh, the mainline denominations, as they used to be called, dwindling uh, in a way that I had not expected. Hmm. So when uh, mainline churches contact those of us who were not mainline and say, can you help us with church growth? (laughs) That's a very odd experience Yeah, uh, because for years we were not welcomed anywhere. (laughs) <laughs> as Pentecostals. So I think there is a a concern to bring life back to the church across the United States. It's just I'm, I'm afraid that some churches have made themselves so uh, bound to human understandings and cultural trends that they have made themselves not able to be revived mm. because they're no longer connected to God. They're basically social networks. Mm. That's, yeah. Something um, my my pastor, one of my pastors, Bev, 
she had sent in was faith is becoming highly politicized. How do we go about reclaiming Christian authenticity while still working against unjust national policies? If I had an answer to that, we'd be worth <laughs> a, a little bit right now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that is the question of the day. So mm. thank God for her question there. <laughs> I, I can give a sense. Yeah. The first thing I think that has to happen is that Christians get together in their local churches and have a frank discussion with their pastor and their leaders mm-hmm. about what has happened. How has politics taken over so much of the faith agenda? Mm. And is there a way that our local church can talk through this so that we're not fighting each other on social media right? (laughs) or engaging in suspicion as to whether or not this person is a Republican or a Democrat? I mean, that's a that's a very difficult discussion to have as a group. Mm-hmm. But is there something as the Church of Jesus Christ that focuses us together on what God wants us to do in this community or in the culture or in the world? The second thing, then, I think, is a refocus on what the faith means. Mm. So there is, as was implied in the question, there is a ramification for how we believe connecting to how we treat others. Right. And I think that becomes the necessary ingredient for a true revival, that it isn't just some kind of spiritual inner thing, but it is a revival in the way we see our neighbor and the way we see each other and how we treat each other. Uh, I also think, thirdly, there needs to be room for differences of opinion. Mm. And what I find increasingly difficult in the political, the politicized arena today of the church is uh, groupthink. Yeah. If you don't <laughs> think like so-and-so, then you're right. wrong. And I can say all kinds of bad things about you to your face or behind your back or in social media. I just don't know when Christians were given permission to behave that way. Mm. Uh, but it is happening, and I think that's a dastardly thing happening. It's the enemy. Yeah. Um, in my mind, this then takes leadership of a local congregation to kind of lead the group through the two-headed monster facing us. Yeah. I think part of the difficulty with that is also seeing the smallness that is the local community, where it is so much easier for, I think, smaller churches to be like, to have these very nuanced, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but like these nuanced conversations about like, this is how we balance faith and politics. I, as the pastor, am not telling you, vote Republican vote democrat i'm like i'm not informing your opinion but like like this is a personal stance um as opposed to a like you know the 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 chairman of the uh the church of god coming forth and making a statement about that um 
And on one hand, I think that goes down to the relational aspect of what the small church is, where it's so much easier right. to, you have a relationship with your pastor, um, as opposed to like, I'm not saying people don't have a relationship with the head of the COG, more so, they're just not as accessible. Right, um, sure. And therefore, it's much more, it's, it's harder to have one of those nuanced conversations. But conversely, whenever you're on that small scale, my church of you know, 80, 85 people, what are we going to say to, you know, our state senator or whatever to change their mind or to act as lobbyists or whatever? So something I struggle with is the idea of I don't know what I can do past a local level. Um, And I think like something that's popular that I've seen is the language of like, you are an earth shaker, you are a world changer. Um, world influencer. Yeah, and and I think p- part of that are my own self-esteem and lack of confidence issues. But that also turns into like, I don't, I, I, I really don't know how to have what, what I feel is, I'm being told as a Christian, I'm supposed to have this global impact and I don't know what I can do about that. And then you're telling me that that global impact is vote Republican or vote, you know, <laughs> vote, vote, whatever. Yeah. And um, I like how much of that is influence on the local level where it's not because you talked about the local church. Well, and that's you, you were perceptive to pick up on that fact. I started at the local church, yeah. not at the global, because in my mind, the individual Christian is responsible to that local church Hmm. and the community within which he or she lives. If you go beyond that, then that requires a layer of leadership beyond the local congregation that can kind of conglomerate several areas or groups to have some effective voice in the government or to the government or in missions or in whatever. But mostly the individual Christian I think just needs to get how to live right and righteously within their local church and community mm. because God calls us there to the neighbor. Uh, it's easy to pray for the world. It's harder to pray for your neighbor next door whose name is Jack. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good point. Um, kind of to wrap us up, this is a question from... Your favorite Gnostic, Chase Chatswell. <laughs> he asks, what are your thoughts on purgatory? Oh, God. <laughs> I guess I'm just praying with that phrase. Oh, <laughs> God. Um, yeah, so I think purgatory is an invention of the traditional church. Uh, there is a history of that occurring somewhere in the early Middle Ages. And uh, at some point, a council uh, confirmed that was the truth. So I see purgatory as, in the biblical sense, maybe pointed to in one of the deuterocanonical apocryphal texts of, I think it's Maccabees 4, 4 Maccabees, rather. Um, But beyond that, there's nothing. (laughs) So... uh, I think there is hell. I think there is heaven, mm-hmm. and not a lot in between. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, Dr. Cross, thank you so much for your time and your perspective and your wisdom. Um, I have no doubt that the listeners will get something out of this. Is there any any words of wisdom, any shout-outs, um, anything you want to leave us with? Well, I did, didn't answer the part about the future of the church, so I ah. probably made it sound pretty negative. Uh, <laughs> but I have great hope in the future of the church because of students like you, Noah, and students <laughs> like those that have been in my classes. They're, they're thinking, they're asking questions, they're not happy with just being handed the status quo from the previous generation. There's a lot I see in that that is similar to what my generation was when I was young. Uh, I don't know that we succeeded with the church in moving it forward, but I think you all will have to. Mm. Uh, God will have placed on your leadership the burden, responsibility, not only of knowledge but of wisdom on how to negotiate these cultural traps that are coming our way uh, in this post-Christian society. Mm. That's going to be the challenge of the future, but I think your generation is much more fitted for that than mine is, <laughs> and God will make you even more equipped for that. That's the prayer, right? Amen. <laughs> That's the prayer. Well, again, thank you, Dr. Cross. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, feel free to check out others that are like this. I have an episode with a friend of mine, Sam Crop, where we talk about the importance and of the accessibility of theology. Um, if you guys want to check that out, and yeah, I hope you enjoyed this. I upload, try to upload every other week as part of this year of 2022, and feel free to check in for more. <laughs> <laughs>